right, so before we get into uh, ST elevation MI next week, I wanted to throw out differential diagnosis, other things that can cause ST elevation, because I don't want everything, although I do want you to always think MI when you see ST elevation, because that's the worst possible scenario. I don't want you to think every time you see ST elevation, that's the only thing it can be is an MI, okay? There are other things that can cause it. We've already talked about a few. So this will partly be review with a few new things that we'll mention today that we haven't seen before. So ST segment elevation can be caused by all of these things on this slide. Myocardial infarction, ischemia, number one, which we'll, we'll talk about in depth next week. Um, things that we've already talked about, left bundle branch block, left ventricular hypertrophy, they'll cause ST segment changes. We'll review that today. Pericarditis, that can cause ST segment elevation as well as something very common, benign early repolarization, which you'll see a lot of, and you have to distinguish between whether or not this ST elevation is, you know, something that's very normal and very common versus something that's very dangerous. Rugata syndrome, uh, hyperkalemia and hypothermia, we'll talk about most of these things today. Um, you can also see something called ST segment depression. So when we think about ST segment depression, we think more like myocardial ischemia. Again, we'll talk about that in the, in the next couple of weeks. Things we've already mentioned, again, left ventricular hypertrophy, the strain pattern that we threw out just before the quiz. Right ventricular hypertrophy, we'll see the strain pattern. Left bundle branch block, right bundle branch block. Wolf Parkinson White, which we've thrown the term out there a few times but haven't really discussed particular EKG changes that you'll see with that other than its potential for SVT. If you go back to SVT, we talked about that um, accessory pathway that potentially can cause you to go into SVT as one of the potential causes. Wolf Parkinson White, we'll talk about that in more detail. Drugs such as digitalis, we'll mention some changes you'll see with that, and hypokalemia also can cause ST segment depression. So in review again, left ventricular hypertrophy. Again, the left ventricle is in the normal heart is larger than the right, so there's more energy typically going to the left. But if somebody has got systemic hypertension, the left ventricle's had to work harder for a longer time, that muscle gets bigger and larger and hypertrophies, and so more energy, more wave of depolarization is going now to the left. So, those, so we see now even more dominant or predominant um, S waves in our right-sided chest leads and those tall R waves in our left-sided chest leads. The left side, right, more energy going to the left, we would expect more positive deflection in that, in that R wave, and so we get the bigger, taller R wave over there. So again, things are tipped even further to the left. Again, we mentioned all this earlier, but the main criteria that we look at, although there are several and none of them are very specific, um, Sokolov-Lyon criteria is the one I would remember. Again, that's S wave depth in V1 plus the tallest R wave height in either V5 or V6. And if that's greater than 35 millimeters, that's a potential left ventricular hypertrophy. There's other criteria like AVL greater than 11, the, the R wave in AVL greater than 11. There's criteria we can find the tallest R wave and the deepest S wave in your precordial leads, add those together if it's greater than 45. There's numerous different ones that are out there. So, but anyway, um, so left ventricular hypertrophy though, the bottom line today is that it also causes uh, ST segment changes. So we see um, ST segment elevation in those leads with the deep S waves, which are usually V1 and V3, right? Because if it's negative inflection, those are your right-sided chest leads. And so what we want to see is what's called appropriate discordance. In other words, if you've got a deep S wave, um, then you would expect there to be ST elevation and a positive T wave, okay? Now, if you've got a tall R wave, then we would expect it to be the opposite 
appropriate discordance, then we, if we had a tall R wave, we would expect to see ST depression with a negative T wave. Those are normal findings in somebody with left ventricular hypertrophy. And here's a picture of it, okay? So this is one of our left-sided chest leads. We've got a tall R wave, and what we see is ST depression and a negative T wave, and that is an expected change. Now, next week, we'll talk about what's called Scarboza criteria, S-G-A-R-B, scribble it out. Like, okay, Scarboza criteria, and what that is, it's particular things that will help you determine if somebody's having an MI in a situation where we would normally see ST elevation or ST depression, like in left ventricular hypertrophy, left bundle branch block. But what we'd expect to see, again, a tall R wave, we would see ST depression and negative T wave, okay? That's left ventricular hypertrophy. And hopefully a review. Again, not always, but sometimes you will have some significant ST elevation in those uh, um, right-sided chest leads where you have the deep S waves, you'll have some ST elevation and positive T waves. Again, there are certain criteria in which it could become too much ST elevation, and we'll talk about that next week, but some is expected, okay? And there's another example of the left ventricular hypertrophy. So you have your deep S waves here. There's not really significant ST elevation, maybe a little bit, although the main thing here is your ST depression and negative T wave, where you have your tall R waves and your left-sided chest leads, and again, Normal finding expected with left ventricular hypertrophy. Left bundle branch block will also throw out very similar findings. Um, again, with the left bundle branch block, there's something blocking that you have the left and right bundles, right, that come off the bundle of his that uh, depolarize the right and left ventricles, um, respectively. And so what happens is that right bundle gets, gets blocked from its wave of uh, depolarization like we were just talking about earlier, and what happens is it should come down from the left, which would be normal. We would expect a normal wave of depolarization from the intraventricular septum from the left to the right. Then we get a, a wave going back from the right to the left and then back to the left to the right again. So that's why typically you'll have that three-phase pattern of the QRS with the RSR prime, although we now know you can have a small Q wave with a tall R wave and that be an acceptable morphology. So anyway, Mouthful, septum gets depolarized from the right to the left, and basically what we're losing is, uh, or we're adding a third, we're talking about left bundle branch, not right bundle branch, but this is where, I, that's why everybody's give, giving me the funny face. <laughs> okay, it's hard when your three-year-old doesn't sleep at night, <laughs> and you gotta get up and rock them back to sleep. So septum gets depolarized from the right to the left, so basically what we're having, instead of that uh, initial wave of depolarization through the, uh, this is the opposite of what I just said, so the, basically you're just getting one big impulse generally from the right to the left, okay? You may have a small septal R wave in those leads, but generally in, those, in these leads here, uh, uh, but, some, but uh, sometimes you'll lose that and you'll basically just have a deep QS wave, okay? And basically it takes, because it's a uh, left bundle branch block, um, it's having a deep, that one, um, that one uh, bundle branch is having to depolarize the entire ventricular myocardium. So it takes longer for that wave of impulse to cross through the entire ventricle. So we get, obviously, a wider QRS, right? So a complete bundle branch block greater than 0 0.12, thank you. An incomplete bundle branch block would be 0 0.10 to 0 0.12, okay? Again, the bottom line today is that um, you can have appropriate discordance with these things. So if you've got a deep uh, QS wave, you may have some slight ST elevation in, in, that, in your 
uh, right-sided chest leads and your left-sided chest leads, you'll have the ST depression and the T-wave inversion, just like in the um, left ventricular hypertrophy. Okay. I don't have a slide specifically showing that. Other than this one, I guess, um, you can see here, again, where you have the deep S-waves, you do have a slight ST elevation with an upright T-wave, and where you have the tall R-waves, you'll have some ST depression and a negative T-wave. Again, normal findings with left bundle branch block and left ventricular hypertrophy to have these ST segment changes. This wasn't on that, that list at the beginning, but pace rhythms will also potentially have these ST segment changes, right? Because what's happening is it works much like a bundle branch block. If you put that um, wire into the right ventricle, then it has to, it's like having a left bundle branch block because the impulse is having to come from the right side all the way across to the left. And so you get the same pattern of a left bundle branch block on the EKG, which also includes these ST segment changes where we have appropriate discordance. Tall R waves, depressed ST. Deep S waves, elevated ST, right? Everybody follow me so far? Okay. So here's an example of the paced rhythm. You've got the pacing wire in the right ventricle, so you get what looks like a, a left bundle branch block. You just get a deep QS wave. There is some slight ST elevation here and not ST depression over here, but it, it, you can have where you have some ST depression and negative T wave there, okay? All right, so right ventricular hypertrophy. Um, Again, normally you have the left ventricle that's dominant and there's more energy going to the left, but now the right ventricle is larger, so the energy is now shifting over to the right. So our right-sided chest leads have the tall R waves. And again, you'll get appropriate discordance in these, in these uh, bundle branch blocks and ventricular hypertrophy. So with tall R waves, the ST depression with inverted Ts, and over here you have the potential to have some, some slight ST elevation with T wave, up, upright T waves. Generally these are more going to have the ST depression with occasional ST elevation. Same thing with left ventricular hypertrophy, okay? Wow, those are all jacked up. Okay, that's just a review of the, the criteria for left ventricular hypertrophy. Again, you can have right axis deviation, although it's not always apparent. Again, the more of these things you have, the more, more evidence there is for right ventricular hypertrophy. Uh, the dominant R wave in V1, greater than seven millimeters. Um, and this, again, strain pattern is the main thing we're talking about today. And said the same thing basically over and over again. Okay. Okay, so with a right bundle branch block, we've already talked about that. <laughs> so. Um, the right bundle branch block, the right bundle gets, is blocked, so you get the three phases of depolar, you know, waves of depolarization in the ventricle, the normal uh, left to right in the intraventricular septum, the right to left, as we would expect, but then it has to go back to the right because the right ventricle hasn't finished depolarizing yet, okay? So you get potentially the RSR prime there for the most part. And so what will happen in the right bundle branch block is you can also get these ST segment changes and... We'll look at that, okay? So ST depression and T wave inversion in your right-sided chest leads. Again, appropriate discordance. That's the term for the day, okay? Where you get these tall R waves, you're going to get ST depression and T wave inversion. And if you get the deep S waves, then you get the elevation and the upright T wave, okay? Kind of like beating the dead horse at this point.
Made you a little chart again. Everybody likes charts. Okay. So um, this is the chart talking about right bundle branch block, left bundle branch block, et cetera. And as you can see, for the most part, these are pretty similar and these are pretty similar uh, where you'll have the ST elevation and depression and such, okay? You can pocket that information. Questions about that? That's all kind of review, so. So something new, pericarditis. Have you guys talked about pericarditis in ClinMed? Okay, no, yes, no. Some people remember it, some people don't. Physical diagnosis, yeah. Okay, so maybe not ClinMed, but you've talked about it. So uh, pericarditis. Okay, you've got the pericardium, right? It's that tissue that surrounds the heart. And you talk about itis, it means inflammation. So that pericardium has some inflammation to it. Different things can cause it. Um, it can be a, an infection, viral infection, bacterial infection. It can be somebody just had uh, sur cardiac surgery. That's the most common place. I, I mean, hard to hear a friction rub outside of that setting. I mean, you, some of you may... But the, I heard it quite often after, because I worked in a cardiac floor after people had bypass surgery for a while, and you could hear that, that sandpaper sound where the, it's kind of rubbing. You could hear that, what's called a friction rub on the exam. So typically what happens, these people have pleuritic chest pain, kind of a sharp, atyp, we call it atypical chest pain because it's not like a typical MI, but it's a sharp chest pain that seems to be worse when they're laying down, and if they lean forward, seems to get better, Okay. And what happens in the EKG is that you'll get widespread ST elevation. So it's not just in a couple leads, it's pretty much everywhere. And um, that's because of just the, where, how it involves the, the underlying epicardium, okay? So again, infectious, mostly viral. And typically, the EKG changes that we're gonna talk about today only typically occur in viral pericarditis, okay? But uh, you can get it from lupus, you can get it from rheumatic fever, post-MI trauma, following cardiac surgery and some medications can do it. There's actually four stages in pericarditis. We're only gonna talk about one, and that's the initial stage, and that's the one that's most commonly known. But it does kinda, of, over a period of several days, kind of transition the EKG changes that you'll see. But we're just gonna talk about stage one, and that's all you gotta worry about, okay? So in the early phase of pericarditis, you get these, again, diffuse ST segment elevations pretty much throughout, except for a couple of leads that we'll talk about in a minute. And we already talked about that, too. Let's go on to the next slide. Okay. So widespread ST elevation. The other thing that we look for is PR depression. So the PR segment will have a slight downward slope to it, whereas the ST segments will be elevated. Now, the only leads you'll see ST depression and PR elevation in would be AVR, which is almost always the case, and possibly V1. Now, you think about it, you're talking about your right-sided leads over here. AVR over here, right, and V1 being the most right-sided chest leads. If you've got ST elevation in a few leads and you've got um, ST depression in several other leads somewhere else, we'll talk about this in more detail next week, that's a, that can be an MI. So you, what you want to make sure of is that the ST depression is only in these AVR, potentially V1, okay? Otherwise, I'd be thinking about something else as a possibility, okay? So ST elevation, widespread PR depression, uh, widespread in the reciprocal ST depression, PR elevation, and AVR and V1, those right-sided leads over here, okay? So you also can get a downsloping TP segment, and we call this a spotic sign. So basically what you're doing is you're, you're taking the ST segment here and drawing a line down through the PR, and you'll just see the T, from, the T, from the T here down to the P, you kind of get a downslope, and that's pretty typical of pericarditis. 
can see some sinus tachycardia, and that's just because they're having some discomfort. Um, you know, that's a possibility. So again, you're, basically what they're doing here is drawing a line at the, at the isoelectric baseline, okay? And what you see is that the PR segment falls below the baseline, and the ST segment is above the baseline, right? Same thing over here, PR depression, ST segment elevation. This is in our widespread leads. Now, this is AVR, right? The one we would expect to see the reciprocal changes in pericarditis. So the PR segment is elevated, and the ST segment is slightly depressed. So that's a reciprocal change. This is consistent with pericarditis. Okay. So widespread ST elevation, widespread PR depression with reciprocal change in AVR, possibly V1. Hopefully this jumps out at you that those ST segments in this one are pretty high, right? This is abnormal, for sure. So what we look for is widespread ST elevation. Yeah, it's definitely in lead one. We can see it in lead two, maybe not in lead three, but it definitely in AVL, AVF. It's in uh, V2, V3, V4, V5, V6, so definitely widespread. So where are reciprocal changes if we have any? And it's in AVR, it's in V1. This one doesn't have reciprocal change. So that fits, our, that fits pericarditis, so it's a good possibility. So we look at our PR segments, uh, definitely looks like a down sloping here, there is, and um, so we have more criteria that kind of fits pericarditis, right? So widespread ST elevation, widespread PR depression, reciprocal changes in AVR and V1. That makes sense to everybody? Okay, so this is not hard stuff. You guys are like awesome at EKG now, so this is like a piece of cake, you experts. Okay, so one other thing that can cause widespread ST elevation, you know, something else to throw in the mix here to have to think about, is we call benign early repolarization. It's not uncommon. Uh, this is something we'll see in young, healthy people, typically less than 50, although I had a guy this week who was 55, did the EKG, and he had benign early repolarization. So it's not impossible over the age of 50, but over that age of 50, it becomes less common because things will change as we age in this regard and you also have to start thinking about other things like MI, right? And you got a 50-year-old, you're doing an EKG on for some reason, and ST elevation, well, first thing you're trying to think about is, is it something bad, right? But benign early repolarization still can happen, okay? Again, it's widespread ST segment elevation, and mainly in the precordial leads, so your chest leads, V1 through V6, although you can see it in the limb leads as well, but the precordial leads really help you out if that's where the main, main changes are at. So this is kind of a scary statistic. 10 to 15% of ED patients presenting to the, with chest pain will have benign early repolarization. So one out of every 10, you're trying to figure out, is this an MI or is this benign early repo? But we'll show you some things that I think make it fairly easy to, to get most of the time. We don't really understand exactly why it happens, but it, but it is one of those things that, um, that uh, does occur pretty regularly. And if, again, if they're over 50 years old, you've got to always be thinking the likelihood of this goes, benign early repo goes down, the likelihood of bad things goes up, so you've just got to be careful with that. So how do we recognize benign early repo? It makes me happy, okay? So what happens is you get an upwardly concave ST segment. Are you familiar with concave, convex? Concave kind of dips down. And so that's how you, why we draw the smiley, smiley face. So it kind of has that curved up appearance there at the ST segment. Kind of curves up like the smiley face will, okay? 
We can see that most often best in V4, although it's not always V4. You can see it throughout the precordial leaves, potentially. There's also, also what we call a notching or slurring at the J point. Remember where the J point's at? I think it's called J point for junction. It's the junction between the QRS complex and the ST segment, that, that very point in which, which things um, meet, right here. And you'll get what's called a fit, like a fish hook or a little notching there. And that's pretty typical of benign early repolarization. So concave, fishhook at the J point. The other thing we look at is these asymmetrical T waves. It's slightly asymmetrical. It's very curved at the front and almost straight down in the back. As you can see, it's got a more of a slow, steep uh, slope up, and it almost comes straight down. Okay, so that's where you get the asymmetrical. And it should be concordant, whereas we were talking about appropriate discordance earlier, we would expect these to be accordant, okay, or concordant. And so where you have a tall R wave, now we would expect the ST segment to be up where you get the tall R wave, okay? Shouldn't be any reciprocal ST depression. So that kind of rules out pericarditis. Also helps us to make sure it's not an MI, as we'll talk about next week when you have re reciprocal depression. That's, that's a biggie when it comes to STEMIs, okay? So, um, and then uh, the ST changes become, are stable. So if you've got something that's going on in an acute process, like an MI, um, if you go in and I'll tell you a story next week about that. But if, there's a, if, if you have somebody that's having an MI, typically things will change over time. The ST elevation may go slowly up, 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 get worse and worse. There's some progression. There's some change. If somebody's got pericarditis, again, like we mentioned, although the process is slower, the EKG changes do progress over time, and there's, there's different stages. If it's benign early repoll, um, it should remain stable each time you take it. So if you've got an old EKG that you can pull, always impress your preceptors. If you've got something abnormal, they have an old EKG that ever been here before? Should you pull up a new, you know, they'll like that a lot. Okay, I would like that a lot. Because what you want to do is you want to compare. Has this ST segment elevation always been there? You know, is this something to be a big deal? Or is it brand new and we need to really get on the ball figuring it out? Okay, so it should remain stable over time. So ST elevation, J-point notch, and you're more prominent in slower heart rate may disappear with tachycardia. So again, if you got, it can be rate dependent. If you've got somebody who's got a different rate, things may appear or disappear. That's possible too. Widespread concave ST se segments uh, going in where it's slightly asymmetrical T wave. You get the push, fish hook here at the J-point, best seen around V4. These, we're talking about mainly the precordial leads with, with the benign early repole, although you can see it in the limb leads as well. <clears throat> All right, so the ST segment elevation hopefully begins to jump out at you. You can kind of see it's got uh, ST elevation mainly in V2, 3, AVF. Uh, you do have some in V1, V2, V3, V4, V5, and V6. So it's pretty widespread, okay? And so we want to look to see um, <clears throat> the morphology of, that, of the ST segment. It has an upslope to it. Um, it does have a slightly asymmetrical T wave. It's a little bit more upslope here and more straight down there. Uh, we can look for the fish hook, best seen generally around V4, but not always. There's a little fish hook there maybe, but definitely you can see it over here in V2. Again, the limb leads are not out of question. Um, it's just it's more common over here. And you can look, to, if you want to see if this is pericarditis, we'll talk about how to differentiate the two in a minute, but you can see that the PR segments are, for the most part, pretty straight. That one looks going to be down, but these are pretty straight there. So that's benign early repolarization. 
can we mention this already, the, the amount of the ST elevation can, can change depending on the heart rate and the, the response to the, the autonomic tone. So the more tachycardic the patient, the less ST elevation you may see. And if they have a slower heart rate, um, it may become more apparent. And the reason that uh, when you get older, we get more concerned is because this ST elevation may gradually disappear. And up to 30% of patients that have benign or repo will, will have complete resolution of this over, over their lifetime. So these, these things will change as we get older. So ST elevation in those older population, we think less benign early repolarization and more bad stuff like myocardial infarction. So we've got two things that cause widespread ST elevation. How are we going to tell them apart? Okay. So we can, there's one thing we'll talk about in a minute. You can look at the ST segment T wave ratio. Actually, we're talking about it now. The vertical height of the ST segment elevation, we go from the very end of the PR segment to the J point. I'll show you a picture of this in a second. It's measured and we compare it to the T wave and we're using V6. All right. So just a ratio of greater than 0.25 suggests pericarditis and a ratio, ratio of zero, less than 0.25 suggests benign early repolarization. I guess it'd be ration, not ration. Okay, so here's our example. All right, benign early repolarization. Again, we're looking at lead V6, and we're going to take the ST segment height, okay? So we look at our baseline right here. So we draw, he drew a blue line for you to show you where the baseline's at. And we go to the J point here, the ST segment elevation, and we drew another blue line, and what we have is one block, one small block, so that's one millimeter of ST segment elevation. Okay, and then we measure our T wave height. So we're going back to the baseline here, draw another line at the top of your T wave, and you count the number of blocks, and they get six blocks. Okay, one divided by six equals 0.16, and since it's less than 0.25, it's most consistent with benign early repolarization. So if you're having some difficulty distinguishing between the two, you can use this little tool to kind of help, help you to sort that out. Just another thing, okay? Again, you can also look at the smiley face, concord, uh, the upward concave um, ST segment elevation. You can see the asymmetrical T wave. Um, doesn't have the notch, but you can see that this has other criteria that can fit benign early repo as well. So typically, benign early repo, you're thinking taller T waves, okay? Taller T waves than with, than with pericarditis, who typically the T waves are a bit shorter. That's basically the long and short of this. So pericarditis, again, you can, they drew a blue line at the, at the uh, essentially the baseline here. They measure the ST segment height, which was two millimeters, measure the, the uh, T wave height, which is four millimeters, and divide that in half, or divide that, and you get 0 0.5, which is more consistent with pericarditis. Again, it doesn't mean that it is, but it's more consistent with, right? So the more, more just like the, the hypertrophy criteria, the more you have, the more likelihood it is. Okay. So just in summary, benign early repolarization, there's elevation at the J point. The T wave is peaked, slightly asymmetrical. Um, the ST segment and the ascending limb of the T wave form, the, form that upward concavity. You get the descending limb of the T wave is a little bit more straightened and more steep than the, than the ascending limb, and you get the J point fish hook, okay? Best seen in, in V4. Look, another chart. All right, so this just kind of compares the two so you can kind of quickly have a glance and 
think about how to separate those two. Any questions about those two things? Okay. Brugada syndrome. Um, I think somebody told me they had this on their pants at one point. It's, it's, uh, so it's something to keep in the back of your mind. It's not something I've ever seen or diagnosed, but it is a life-threatening um, EKG change or EKG, uh, something that potentially could be life-threatening. Let's put it that way, okay? So basically what it is, it's an EKG abnormality that has high incidence of sudden death. Basically these patients can go into ventricular fibrillation just like that. Um, it's a sodium channelopathy, so it's a, it's a genetic problem that these patients have. And whenever you find this on the EKG in, in, in conjunction with some um, find, other findings, clinical findings, then really they warrant admission to the hospital, okay? Just because of leading, this is a bunch of the stuff we won't read, but, but it's one of those things that um, definitely we should catch your attention, okay? So the EKG finding is what we call the, the Brugada sign. Now just having the sign alone does not mean that these patients have Brugada syndrome, but it ought to make you think about it anyway, okay? So what it is, is this um, con, uh, I hate the concave, it's a code morphology of the ST segment, okay? So it's, it's about two millimeters of ST elevation with a negative T wave inversion. It has what we call like a saddleback um, morphology, okay? Um, very classic looking if you see that. And um, what you want to do is if you put that together with one of a couple of things, um, I guess they're on the next slide. So, sorry. All right, so the, the Brugada sign is this, ST elevation of two millimeters or more, typically in V1 and V2 with the negative T wave. So things can make that appear that when sometimes it's not always there. Fever, ischemia, medications, hypokalemia, hypothermia, and again, the diagnosis depends on the EKG finding and other clinical stuff, such as if somebody comes in with syncope, um, you, and you do an EKG and you see this, that's, a, that's Brugada syndrome until proven otherwise. If they've got nocturnal agonal respiration, which is pretty crappy anyway, okay, <gasps> you know, they're not doing very good. I'd probably want to put them in the hospital anyway. Um, if they've got a documented history of VFib or polymorphic VTAC, that sounds pretty bad any, anyhow, okay. The one I would say catches, would catch your attention too, if somebody got a family member who died below, under the age of 45. So what you're looking for is, again, this is a genetic problem. If you've got a potential family history of somebody dropping dead at an early age, it's potentially because they had Brugada syndrome too. And if, if you know, which is a bit more difficult, if you know somebody in the family has got the same kind of EKG changes, again, genetic problem, then it's the potential that this is Brugada syndrome. So there's certain things you have to match it up with one of these criteria for it to be Brugada syndrome, because you can have this and not have Brugada syndrome, but have a Brugada sign. So you put this together. If you see these things, like I said, it warrants admission to the hospital because these patients are at risk for sudden death. You don't know when it's going to happen. And the treatment for this is to put in an ICD. Uh, so what you want to have something to convert them when they go into ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. So again, I've never seen it, but it is something that's out there, and, and you may see it at some point on, a, on an exam, board exam. So again, uh, you're looking at mainly your right-sided chest leads, um, and you have the two, two millimeters of ST elevation that, uh, that goes this way, and then you have a negative T wave after that. Kind of sticks out to me. I don't, I don't know. It's easy to me. It seems easy to pinpoint. Maybe, maybe not to y'all, but at this point, but it does have a very classic appearance. Um, they can't really pin it with anything else. Okay. 
So that's a Brugada sign if they have it with one of those other things, the VTAC, family member that died under the age of 45 or a similar EKG change or different things like that. That's Brugada syndrome. Put them in the hospital and they need an ICD, okay? Questions about Brugada syndrome. One other thing can cause ST elevations, we call Prinzmetal's angina. It's also called variant angina, and basically it's just a coronary vasospasm. Instead of stenosis or plaque buildup, it's something that kind of comes and goes as that coronary uh, artery spazzes and closes up. Um, it's, it's something we can see definitely in younger women, people with Raynaud's. You guys familiar with Raynaud's syndrome, migraine? So Raynaud's, people that uh, used to work with a nurse that had Raynaud's, and her hands would just get freezing cold and, and pale and Basically what it is, just a vasospasm of those, those arteries in the hand. So the same thing's happening in the coronary arteries, okay? So people with Raynaud's migraine, if they're having, in young women, um, chest pain, you know, it could be what we call variant or Prince metals angina. So obvious bad ST elevation here, right, okay? So inferior leads, significant ST elevation. You have reciprocal depression in your precordial leads, and then some of your lateral leads have some ST elevation. So you have like inferior lateral ST elevation with reciprocal changes in your septal leads, okay? So that would look like just a classic MI. How do you know the difference? Well, you don't until you get them to the cath lab and they look in there and, and see that they don't have any coronary artery disease at all, okay? So sometimes these symptoms will typically occur at night and when people are at rest, and so that's one of those things you can kind of uh, help you to suspect that. If the pain is occurring at rest or in clusters and, and, you, and you put them on the treadmill and they're going hard and nothing happens, and, you know, they may end up taking them to the cath lab to just explore that and see what's going on, okay? Prinzmetal's angina can cause um, ST elevation when they're having the chest pain. And so what they do is a gold standard of checking that out. Again, cardiac cath, they're putting in the doing the angiography, seeing that they don't have any coronary disease, and so they do what's called provocative, they put some medication there to cause the, the vasospasm to happen, like uh, ergonavine or ogonavine. Have you talked about that medicine at all? Maybe not. Okay. It's not something I'm familiar with outside of this setting either. But, um, so, but what that does is it can potentially cause the vasospasm, and then they can use things like vasodilators, nitrates, different things to prevent the spasm. And um, what you don't want to do is give these patients beta blockers or aspirin because that can actually potentiate the vasospasm, okay? So you're out in the clinic, somebody says, yeah, I got a history of Prinzmetal's angina, and they've got hypertension, don't put them on a beta blocker, <laughs> okay? So that's key to that. Beta blocker and aspirin, don't, you don't need to give those patients. When they're having the spasm, mm -hmm. You know, I suppose it would be possible if it lasted long enough, um, you know, because troponin is released as a, as a cardiac biomarker when there's damage, to, yeah, damage to the myocardium. So I suppose if the myocardium went without oxygen and nutrients long enough, it's possible. So you can, like, verify with the troponin. Well, that'd be delayed anyway, so you're still in the Yeah, sure, yeah. Anytime we had somebody come to the emergency room with, with a ST elevation, that's, they pretty much bypass us. Uh, if they're coming from another hospital, I mean, the cardiologists are there waiting to take them to the cath lab. Same thing would be true as soon as we saw that. I'd be on the phone with the cardiologist who'd probably take them to the cath lab. Yeah. Yep, good question. All right, digitalis effect. So Dig doesn't seem to use as much as it did, you know, years ago, but um, it's still out there, still something that we use. 
and it can cause uh, ST segment changes as well. It can get some, uh, we we'll call it gradual downsloping. I guess this is, this is Salvador Dali, I think. So Salvador Dali's mustache is kind of the example that Dubin gives for um, the ST segment depression. You can always think of that little swoop there. I wish I could pull that off. Um, so anyway, uh, so you kind of get, this is what we call the dig effect. And so you get an ST segment that just kind of gradually dips down below the baseline like that, okay? Um, yeah, we'll go into all that too much, okay? Really no S-wave, just basically kind of hooks. So excess dig can cause AV blocks and you can get these PACs, which can be an early warning sign of that. I'll leave this to ClinMed. This is just some stuff, or if you guys talk about this in pharmacology, that's fine. So just be familiar basically with the, the Salvador Dali ST uh, sloping here. There's no obvious um, S wave and you've got basically just an R wave. Where you have your R waves is where you're gonna get this little down sloping um, ST segment, okay? Questions about that? As you can see, I don't get too hung up on that. Wolf, Parkinson, White. Okay. So pre-excitation pattern on the EKG due to the bypass tract. If we go back again to the SVT that we talked about, one of the things that can make somebody have paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia is an accessory pathway. It can be on the right side, left side. It, depend, it, does, it just can vary. We call that a, the bundle of Kent. Okay, the bundle of Kent is just another pathway for the electricity to go from the atria to the ventricles. Remember, the, you have the AV node or the cardiac skeleton that separates the atria from the ventricles to prevent the electricity to go through. The only way should be the AV node, but in these patients, they have the accessory pathway where, the, where that wave of depolarization can travel down through that prematurely. Okay, so these patients um, can, again, are prone to paroxysmal SVT, and it's a good reason to send somebody to a cardiologist for additional workup. Now, we'll talk about why, but it can be mistaken for bundle branch block, hypertrophy, or even MI, and we'll talk about the, the EKG changes that will make you think that potentially, okay? Again, called the bundle of Kent, um, somewhere around the mitral tricuspid valves or the intraventricular septum, and again, just an abnormal connection that we have early in life and fetal development that just fails to close up or, or fail to uh, disappear. Three real classic things, these are the three things I would keep in mind. There's other changes we see as well, but these are the three that when I think about Wolf, Parkinson, White, that come to mind, okay? The QRS gets widened. So that's what, where we get the potential appearance of a bundle branch block, right? The PR interval is shortened, and the QRS complex has a slur to it called a delta wave. So prolonged or wider QRS, shorter PR interval, and a slur called a delta wave at the beginning of the QRS complex. So what's happening, the reason that you get that, okay, the reason that you get the slur and the widened QRS is because um, in the shortened PR, all these things, if you think about it pathophysiologi pathophysiologically, is that the, you know, you're getting the premature depolarization of the ventricles, right? So, so the PR is not as long, it's shortened now because it's getting past, getting from the atria down to the ventricles much quicker. And so the, that makes the, the, the uh, QRS complex wider because it's getting there sooner and the reason you get the slur there is because what happens is the, the wave of depolarization coming through the bundle of Kent meets up with the wave of depolarization that finally came down through the AV node, and so then you get the slur followed by a normal-looking complex, okay? 
So YQRS PR shortened and a slur uh, at the beginning. So this is the example of that. Okay. Can you kind of see the slurring right here of the, of the QRS complex? We call that the delta wave. That's always the first thing that jumps out at me when I see an EKG with somebody with Wolf Parkinson White. I'm not really paying attention too much to the PR interval in QRS complex. That slur is usually what catches your attention. So the, the delta wave there, you have a shortened PR and you have um, the widened QRS complex. Can look a lot like a right ventricular hypertrophy, right? Almost, because you've got the tall R waves and stuff over here. So it can mimic a right ventricular hypertrophy. It can also mimic an MI, as we mentioned on the first slide, we haven't talked about that yet, but where you get Q waves in an MI, okay, the initial downward deflection. You can get some Q waves over here from that slur that's upside down in, in this AVL, okay? So shortened PR, YQRS slur called a delta wave, and that's the big findings on Wolf Parkinson White. It too will have ST segment changes, which is why we threw it in this lecture. So ST segment and T wave discordant changes. Um, so where you have, tall R waves, you'll get some ST depression and negative T wave inversion, okay? So that's what we're talking about here. Um, you can also potentially get some ST elevation and, and T wave, uh, upright T waves in your, in your leads where you have tall R waves. So appropriate discordance can ha will happen in Wolf-Parkinson-White. Again, the pseudo-infarction pattern, where we talk about these pseudo-Q waves, um, uh, like we mentioned in the AVL there, or these, in these prominent R waves in V1 through 3, mimic a posterior infarction, which we'll talk about next week, um, or a right ventricular hypertrophy. So it's mimicking those things, but it's Wolf-Parkinson-White that caused it. It's not right ventricular hypertrophy. Yes, ma'am. Can you have an inverted P wave? Is that what you said? Yeah, I suppose if you, if you, in those patients, they could be like anybody else. The sinus node may not work appropriately, and you could get um, a lower atrial. Um, ectopic place that would cause a retrograde depolarization, is that what you mean? Yeah. I think there's a possibility, I wouldn't say it's like common or, no. yeah, no, I wouldn't expect that, that would be just, um, just an abnormality just like anybody else. But just more prone to SVT. Not terribly uncommon, although it's not everybody. Reported in one to two out of a thousand individuals. Um, sometimes you'll see it in family members, um, but not always. And there's some other things like congenital heart disease that may cause these patients to have, also see Wolf Parkinson White in those patients. Again, the clinical significance is that um, these patients are prone to arrhythmias, especially SVT, which is atrial fibrillation, which rarely but possibly could lead to ventricular fibrillation. So there is some life-threatening risk to having this abnormality, although I would say it's rare that they go into ventricular fibrillation, but it's not impossible. <clears throat> Again, the EKG on, uh, can be mistaken for bundle branch block. It can be mistaken for MI. It can be mistaken for right ventricular hypertrophy, posterior MI. Um, but those changes that we see that are typically there are due to the Wolf-Parkinson-White, not those conditions, generally speaking. 
It's not to say that somebody with Wolf Parkinson White can't have right ventricular hypertrophy or have an MI, but generally we see those changes and it's just a common, common expected thing. So what do we do? Well, radio frequency ablation, they go in, we get a guy with an electrophysiologist um, who will go in and ablate that area to, to prevent any um, depolarization to happen through that, that spot. If they can't do that for some reason, you can treat those patients with medications. Um, and sometimes, and I thought this was interesting, that um, even if they don't need to be fixed, but you got somebody who's like a professional athlete or a pilot, so you don't want, you don't want a guy flying your plane to all of a sudden go into V-fib or something crazy, uh, you know, or they've had people who suddenly died in their family and they go ahead and just deal with it anyway. But generally, and if they're asymptomatic, we don't mess with it. If they are symptomatic, you, you look at ablation versus potentially medications. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it's, it's probably a precipitating event. I mean, unless you've got a, I don't think there's a strong enough, uh, don't quote me on this, I don't think there's a strong enough family, um, you know, a genetic strength to that that you would just do it on anybody if they've got a family history of it. But there's something that prompts you to do it and you finally just pick it up where they had palpitations or whatever it is that just prompts you to do the EKG. If they're symptomatic and they think it was related, um, then possibly. I th my, my, my wife's cousin, when she was little, I don't know if she had Wolf Parkinson White, but because I, I didn't know much about medicine at the time I was before I was in, did anything, it was a long time ago. She was real young, and I remember her having an ablation for SVT, and so I, I don't know if she had Wolf Parkinson White or what, but she, I mean, they, they will do it if it's if the patient's having a hard enough time, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, our, there's an EP guy that comes to our hospital, and he, he's not going to mess with kids. Generally, with kids of any, almost any circumstance, they, you want a pediatric somebody to do it. It's GI stuff, if we got a kid with a GI problem, even the one that's like they swallow something they weren't supposed to swallow, I mean, the GI docs will not go put a scope down and pull it out. They want a pediatric guy to do that. They usually punt those things elsewhere. So, yeah, if it's a kid thing, generally a pediatric something's going to do. Anything else? Okay. All right. <clears throat> Getting near the very end. So less common cause of ST elevation, things we didn't talk about, but things you can just try to remember. Uh, pulmonary embolism can cause ST elevation. We'll talk about specific changes with PE in the coming weeks, but ST elevation can happen in PE. Uh, acute aortic dissection, hyperkalemia, which we'll talk more about a uh, week after next. Um, some sodium channel blocking drugs, J-waves, hypothermia, hypercalcemia. They'll cause some ST changes um, following electrocardioversion, blah, blah, blah. Okay, these are just some things you can remember. All right, basic rules of ST elevation. This is the key part, really. All, all these things we just said, none of it's 100%, none of it's guaranteed. You've got to use your clinical judgment, okay? Um, so, you know, even these... Nothing's 100%, like it says here, 15 to 20% of STEMI cases that come through the cath lab, there's no coronary disease. It's better to have more people go to the cath lab than not enough, okay? You, you don't want to miss the MIOS, well, probably pericarditis and the guy croaks on, in, on you, okay? So better to send them if you don't know. Uh, again, always obtaining an old EKG, something to compare it to, that's great. Serial EKGs are also very helpful. If you don't have an old EKG, five or 10 minutes goes by, repeat the EKG, see if things are changing. That's, that's always a good clue, too. We've caught a few patients that way. Um, they were having something bad, and then 
Positional and pleuritic chest pain, even though it's consistent with pericarditis, does not mean it's not an MI. So you have to be very careful, okay? Nothing's 100%. These are just some guidelines that help you to make the decision, but you gotta look at the patient, put everything together, send them to the cath lab, call the cardiologist if you don't know, okay? Questions? All right, done for the day. Um, next week's MI. Um, Good luck on your farm stuff.